Welcome back, everyone, to Season 3, Episode 8 of the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. In this episode, Linda sat down with Gordon McLean, who courageously speaks out about his journey with mental health, specifically with depression, anxiety, and male borderline personality disorder traits. He speaks out about tending to take on a caregiver role, always putting himself last and struggling to be accepted by others and himself, which has led to the breakdown of many relationships in his life. While Gordon notes that he was not officially diagnosed, this episode does focus on the traits he identifies as part of this disorder. This interview is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional counseling services. If you feel that you would like to speak to a licensed mental health professional, please visit us at www.kellymentalhealth.com. Welcome to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. I'm Linda Kelly, and I have a special guest today, Gord McLean. Now, Gord is appearing on our podcast today because we have, of course, a very great interest in looking at the mental health issues that are faced by men. And it's not something that gets talked about a whole lot, but Gord was uh, wonderful enough to be able to offer some some advice and, and information about what it's like to experience some mental health issues or even just navigating the day-to-day uh, challenges of basically being a man in this world. So welcome, Gord. Thank you for having me. Hopefully yeah. I can help out a little bit here, spread a little bit of light on to men's mental health and how it is day-to-day for us. Mm-hmm. So just tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, what do you do? Where are you from? So work in sales, um, originally from Southern Ontario, Hamilton, moved up here in 96, um, have been up here since then, um, have been dealing with mental health, specifically depression and uh, borderline personality disorder since probably high school. Um, okay. So yeah, it's pretty much been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Wow. So were, were you formally diagnosed or was this something that you sort of started to learn about on your own? Uh, formal diagnosis is for depression and high functioning anxiety with the borderline personality coming after looking back and seeing all the patterns over the last 20 years. Um, that's where the borderline personality diagnosis came in, where this, the symptoms were depression and anxiety that were being masked as part of a greater thought process or the wires getting crossed inside my head. Wow. Okay. Cause of course, any kind of personality disorder, any kind of cluster B sort of diagnosis, we're looking at um, usually that your whole life is affected by these kinds of things. And, and for a lot of people, they'll spend, I mean, years questioning what's wrong with me before they start to realize that, Hey, th- this is actually a thing. You're not alone in this. Uh, and that's exactly what it was, was there was kind of, um, at the end of my last marriage, I kind of did a whole bunch of self-reflection and it was, why do I keep making these same mistakes? Why does the same thing keep happening to me over and over and over again? And if it happens once, okay, maybe not my fault, but when it keeps happening again and again, that's where I had to stop looking outside and start looking internally as to, okay, what's going on? Why am I making these same bad decisions? And why do I go down the same path each and every time? Right, right. Which is, you know, it's a wonderful proactive approach just to be able to go, you know, we're going to not blame other people, not blame the situations, but really just look at 
look at what am I doing and what are my reactions? That's, it's wonderful that you're able to do that. It wasn't easy. No, I'm sure it wasn't. I mean, there's a reason that we all, uh, you know, when we're, when we're children, if someone ever accuses us of something, we're like, I didn't do it. (laughs) Right. It's because it's hard to swallow. It's like, there's, I think personally, there's this tendency to really be fearful of consequences when something is, you know, your responsibility. But on the other hand, I talk to people all the time about this and that it is actually so liberating to own what you're doing and what you're going through, because that means that you have some control over what happens next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, the biggest fear was always, if I look deep enough into what's going on in my brain, is it going to change who I am? on a day-to-day level um, because at the height it was as if I was wearing so many different I always say I was wearing different masks because if I was at work I had one mask on when I was with my family it was a different mask when I was with one group of friends it was another mask and I had my life very compartmentalized where this group didn't interact with this group and when those worlds crossed it was like chaos in my brain trying to manage and navigate that Hmm. that's really interesting just to to feel that you were playing uh, almost like a different role in every in every area like that they're all parts of me just different aspects of the same personality Hmm. how would you say it differed you know for example between you know work and family so the work one was where I grew up basically as like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. The typical work ethic was you go to your job, you do your job, you don't talk back, you just keep doing your work. If somebody gives you a job, you just do it, you don't complain. So that Hmm. was constant all the way through when I was at work. And being in sales, you learn different psychology and different things to pick up on. Um, So when I would go home, that sales part of my brain would shut off. And it was just as if there was a different, the father figure mentality came in. So you had to do the providing, you had to do the cooking, the cleaning, make sure everybody was prepared, ready to go for the next day. So you prioritize things. And for me, it was pushing everybody up above. So that would go, the kids would always be the top priority. And then my partner would be the next priority right down to the pet, which would left me at the very end of the limit. So at the end of the day, you're just completely exhausted. You get three, four hours sleep and you're up and you're doing it again. Wow. That's incredible to, to put that level of effort out and consistently you're talking over years, right? Oh yeah. Over 20 years. Um, and it all comes back to the, if I don't do something, is that person not going to like me? Is that person going to leave me? It's not that they're liking you for you. It's what do I bring to the table was the way I always looked at things. So if I wasn't bringing anything to the table, why would you have me in your, in your life or in your picture? Right, right. And when, you, when we talk about borderline personality disorder, typically that a lot of the symptoms that you see, which I mean, to the outsider can often look like real emotional instability and, and impulsivity and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It, it usually is based on this dread, this fear of abandonment, whether that abandonment is real or perceived. Yeah. And how does that, how does that play in for you? 
uh, that was always my biggest driver, my biggest fear. Um, because you constantly live in this dread, even to this day, um, I still have to keep checking myself that, no, you're in these relationships, whether it's friendship, business, or anything, because you're worthy to be in it. But that still pops into my head. Um, I don't know how many times I've caught myself, I'll bring in a box of donuts to the guys at work for no reason. Well, why am I doing that? Am I doing that because I want to see them happy and I have no problem bringing them a box of donuts? Or am I trying to buy my 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 position in that pack or the herd kind of thing? So mm. even to this day, that sort of stuff still creeps in, but now I can see those kind of patterns. But that's been prevalent as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. And of course, when we when we're things we're putting ourselves out there, I mean, a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like we're paying a price that we don't have any money left to pay so we we become resentful and and i'm curious did that ever come into the picture with you oh yeah it, it flares um <laughs> the thing is your anxiety kicks in so you have the big blow up you have the big fight about being the one who's always doing the laundry and the dishes and always cleaning up and you have the fights and then at the end of the fight that fear of being left behind in. So you're the one that goes forward and says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. It was my fault. It's my, my bad. I have no problem doing that. And you kind of fall right back into the same position of pattern. Right. It sounds like a lot of extremes then. Oh, yeah. It's either all or nothing. Finding that balance is a very tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. And what what do people typically have to go through to find that balance or or at least what blocks them from finding that balance um it's tough because i'm still to this day trying to find that balance and it's that ever it's that constant challenge to try and get to where that balance is um if i knew what the answer was i'd gladly give it i'd bottle it and that'd be my fortune making right there so it's right. trying to remain open with communication and luckily I've got a bunch of good friends now that I can kind of talk to explain things and go from there mm -hmm. you know and it's it's interesting to hear you talk about you know going from extreme to extreme of, of just giving so much and then becoming resentful and and feeling almost you know so insecure in a lot of ways because you know, obviously you and I have, have uh, interacted, you know, in, in the public and, you know, through business and things like that. And all I ever see from you is this, you know, high functioning person knows what he's talking about, willing to help anyone mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and never, never a sense of, of a struggle for you. You become a master of acting and there are days where you even if I have zero energy, you still get up, you still put on that smile, you still go through the day, um, and you still push through. Um, even when I was at my darkest times, I still went to work um, because the day that I checked into the mental health unit at the hospital, I went to work for six hours and fully functioning day. Nobody at work knew anything until the end of the day. I made one last phone call and meant the uh, mental health worker for a coffee 
And within two hours, I was inside the room in the ER getting checked into about mental health. So definitely there's just so much going on there where you, you are able to put on that mask and, and keep going. But it sounds like the more that you're, you do that, the more that you put on that mask, the more of a price there is to pay. Oh, it definitely does wear you down and drain you down. And there becomes a point where you're, part of you is afraid to peel off those masks because you don't know who you are underneath all those masks anymore. Mm-hmm. How do you think that this has affected your relationships? Um, well, if you ask any of my ex-wives, they would say that I was probably the nicest guy and did everything, um, but they couldn't understand or could, they couldn't see what was going in my head because there is no communication. Everything is what they want. Sure, no problem. Expressing what I want or what I need from relationships was never a priority, so I never voiced it. Um, and again, that comes back to my mindset of I make sure everybody else in the room is taken care of before I even consider making sure my needs are met. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, uh, with this kind of disorder, this kind of presentation, typically we seem to see it more in women. So I'm curious if that played into, you know, for how long it took you to come to this conclusion that this, this actually might fit. Um, as to the split between male and female, I never looked into that. Um, I know there are a bunch of people out there that do make into these um, mm-hmm. different criterias. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where it'd be interesting to see the split on it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also a challenge because I think there's periods of time where it's been overdiagnosed and then periods of time where it's been underdiagnosed and it's, uh, you know, quite a spectrum as well, right? Not everyone's going to be on the extreme end of it. Some people will, you know, it's just like the difference between some people have full-blown bipolar disorder and then there's sort of a lesser extreme called cyclothymic, which is bipolar two. And it's like the same things, but just to a lesser extent, yeah. And so with, uh, you know, personality disorders, with anxiety, with depression, we're all on a spectrum and our functioning is so, so impacted by what we're going through and the environment that we're in. Uh, It is. And um, I can remember seeing when Pete Davidson of SNL came out that he was on the spectrum. Part of me was, okay, "Okay, great, it's getting awareness now. And then part of me is going, great, now everybody under the sun is going to be diagnosed and this is going to be the next high fashion mental illness to have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's true. It becomes in vogue a little bit. (laughs) I noticed that more so with PTSD lately, actually. (laughs) Yeah, in the early to mid 90s, it was depression. Everybody had to be on either Prozac or Zoloft, and then that rolled into PTSD. And now anybody who actually has it, I feel bad for them because there's so many people that throw that term around, it's lost all of its meaning and the serious implication of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and of course, with with uh, situations this extreme or even just with 
you know, the person's experience of life, their perspective, it, it can result in such emotional ups and downs that suicidal ideation is huge. Mm-hmm. It is a big, big problem. And, you know, I know it's a sensitive topic, but I'm curious that, I mean, you had checked yourself into adult mental health. Was, was there a suicide risk for you? Oh, there was. Um, Basically, this goes back 12, 13 years now. Um, Basically, I was in my first marriage. Um, I was working two jobs. Bills were piling up. It was... Um, not a healthy living environment that I was in. And basically one night I said, okay, I'm giving myself 24 hours. If I'm still feeling this way in 24 hours, um, I had the plan. I had everything accessible. It was just that plain and simple. Um, And then that's where I made the phone call to the suicide assistant watch after sitting at work all day and putting in that full day's work, there was that plan. And when I got to the mental health, um, it was just a, a burnout. But in my brain, I had it figured out that, okay, um, my son, he's young enough. He's not going to know exactly what happened. He'll just have these good stories and these good memories to live through me um, or to remember me by insurance would have taken care of all the bills the house would have been paid off everything logically went through my brain to make sure that okay all these things are taken care of so even in that bottom moment i was still making sure everybody else was taken care of and prepared ahead of myself wow that's incredible you know just to think of even just how in a moment of what I would assume is high, high emotion here, you were thinking so logically. Yeah. And it was just that crystal. Um, everybody's always joked that I'm the one who can organize a herd of cats and get them to show up on time perfectly in line. Organization <laughs> just comes naturally to me. So when I was going through in my brain, everything all the options, all the outcomes, everything that was laid out from start to finish, it just was a natural progression to make sure it was all done and taken care of. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what stopped you? Um, honestly, I don't know what made me pick up the phone to, to make that call. Um, growing up, I had an aunt who suffered a whole range of different mental illnesses um, to the point where she was actually institutionalized in the psych hospital in Hamilton for most of her adult life. So the thought of even going to the mental health at the hospital absolutely terrified me. And that was the last thing I would have rather have done myself in than go to the hospital. But something made me go to the hospital, whether it was having that coffee um and i think once i had that cup of coffee with the mental health worker they weren't letting me go anywhere except for to the hospital mm-hmm. 
Right. That's, you know, that fear of the hospital, that's, that's very pervasive. I, I've heard that many, many times of people even that will come to me or come to us, uh, our clinic and just say, you know, talk to me now, because I can't go there. And uh, what, what do you think was, like, where was the fear coming from in terms of going to the hospital versus what it was actually like when you got there? It turns into that stigma, and I think this is what most guys run into in the mental health, is that we're not strong enough. Everybody thinks that the guys have to be the strong, macho. Um, we can't show emotion. We can't If we show that we're going to the hospital for mental health issues, that means we failed, and mm. guys aren't allowed to fail. It's just society. You have to keep going. You're either a winner or or you're a loser, there is no in between, there is no balance. So for me, my brain was always, I'm going to the hospital. That means I failed. I've lost the struggle. It's, I'm not strong enough, which is the stupid male ego coming out, which is what society has trained guys to think like. Mm -hmm. Well, that, I mean, just what you said there was just, it kind of gives me pause. Guys aren't allowed to fail that you're either a winner or a loser. I mean, such extremes. Is this something that, that people pick up early on, like in childhood? Yeah. Growing up, I had a great childhood. Um, two great parents, supportive. Anything I wanted to try, they were there. They were supportive. But just going growing up, I was always involved in sports. And while I was never a super athlete, there was always that drive to give it your best. You've got to, your team has to go through, keep trying to win. Even though you might lose, you still got to always try to win. So subconsciously, that rolls through into your growing up place where you got to try and you keep trying until you succeed. But what they fail to prep you for is that failure before you succeed because you're going to fail a lot more than you succeed. That's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, I see plenty of memes and, you know, plenty of pop psych these days about that, that, you know, what Dave Grawl says, right. You have to suck at something before you get really good at something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I would like to think that that's more normalized now, but I, I even notice with my own son, we don't, we don't really put any of those expectations on him, but he is terrified to not do something right. Yep. It's that you have to be perfect the first time up to the plate. And it sucks because I see that in my own son where society just doesn't give us that room to fail. That's, that is tragic to, to think of it that way, to, to think that there's so, so much pressure on, on uh, people in, in so many different areas of their lives. And as guys get older and we have kids and that mental mindset of okay i gotta go to work i gotta get the paycheck i gotta work 70 hours a week because i have to provide i have to make sure the house bills are paid i have to make sure there's food on the table that pressure all still comes through um and a lot of that is pressure that we put on ourselves because we think that's what society is wanting us to do so then if you're not able to do that like say if you if you lose your job if you get laid off what is that what does that do to you in terms of your self-image um 
for the longest time I wrap myself up is in my in my job. Uh, for me, it was all mm-hmm. about getting that job title. Um, and when I hit the the top job title, it was great until I realized that now where do I go from here? You can either keep searching or you have to look around and go, okay, am I okay with just being in sales? Do I have to be the general manager or the area general manager? Where is that happy spot for you? And it's not in a title. Mm-hmm. No, it so rarely is. And yet they, they do teach us to strive for that, the better title, the better pay and, and, uh, you know, sucks to you if you're happy or not. Right. <laughs> That's Yeah. And that has to weigh uh, on you and, and on a lot of men where they just, they are kind of cast into this role. Like you, your value becomes based on how well you provide. And of course I'm in the absolute worst profession for anybody with mental health being sales because you're right. only as good as your last set of numbers, which resets every 30 days. Oh my gosh. And, and you, you literally are building a career on being liked. Wow. There are, like I said, this is where those masks come in handy because that salesman mask, that's the one that I can wear 90% of the time. So that when I am out in public, even if I am feeling crappy, you're, you're able to compartmentalize, internalize, and just stick it away on the shelf so that I may not be able to deal with that right now in the next five minutes, but I'll deal with it later on down the road. Um, cognitive mm-hmm. therapy really helped me be able to push through and show that, okay, if I can't change it right now, I'll deal with it later when I can. I just have to remember to deal with it later on rather than just keep pushing it aside. Right, right. And that's exactly it. And, and, you know, one of the examples I often will tell people is you got to think of like a soldier in the war and there's people dropping left, right, left, right. There's people dying around you. You don't have time to grieve if you want to stay alive. So what do you do? You know, you, you compartmentalize, you put it away, you just keep moving, moving, moving. And, but a lot of people then, you know, even when they enter that time of peace, we call it, you know, like the valley of your life where you are, Everything is kind of calm. If we don't then open up those compartments and deal with what we put away, we're still going to be carrying them. 100%. And that's where I found that in the past, I treated it through things like food, um, crazy, stupid adventures, and I'm going to say not high-risk activities, but medium-risk activities. Like growing up, Mm. it was rock climbing, paintball, kayaking, all the adventure sports that that's how I dealt with stuff looking for that rush and not really not a fear of death but if it happened it happened Hmm. so really quite accepting of whether you know if something went wrong it's just as what it is but ultimately really pushing yourself towards that adrenaline rush that the excitement that gets you out of the mundane and probably I would imagine distracts you from your thoughts for 30 seconds. And then you're back looking for the next rush. (laughs) What would you say is, would, would you say is more of say like the, the darkest times of your life? What was, what was going on at those points? So at that time, um, like I said, I was in my first marriage, um, mm-hmm. was living with my wife, 
uh, my stepdaughter, my son, and we had moved into a place with my my wife's parents. Um, and it was always a four against one kind of odds mentality. So I was working two jobs. Um, I was working a day shift. My wife, she was at the time working a night shift. So there was no communication or anything, um, no support that way. And when we did cross paths, we were both so exhausted and tired, we were just constantly nitpicking and fighting with each other because of sheer exhaustion of having newborns plus working multiple jobs. So there was just that stress. Everything at my point was, I'm trying to keep this household together. I couldn't do it. And I was just in quicksand. Every move I made, it just felt like it was the wrong move. Um, Mm-hmm. So there's a, a movie called The Replacements with Keanu Reeves, and he just talks mm-hmm. about quicksand. And this is the best analogy I've ever been able to find for how I feel when these panic attacks happen, is every step you take, it's the wrong choice. It's the wrong foot that you let off with. Had you gone for the other one, you would have been fine, but you just make the wrong mistake. Then you move again, you make the wrong mistake. So at the end of it, you're just constantly doubting every single move you make until you are paralyzed and that's when you just start sinking and everything comes crashing down over top of you it's not that it's a single event or a single thing that triggers you it's just decision after decision after decision that comes across like you're doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and people are always calling you out there's no positive reinforcement in that environment Wow. Wow. And, and now in retrospect, you know, being removed from the situation and having all the emotions that are usually tied up in these situations that causes paralysis. Can you look back now objectively and actually feel that you were making all the wrong decisions? Or do you feel like that that was really a a skewed perspective? Um, No, it was a very skewed perspective. Um, And I don't want to say that the people I was living with were gaslighting, but it was very close to every decision I would make. It didn't matter. They would find some reason or somehow to turn that that I made the mistake and that it was my fault things weren't going right. There was no accountability mm. on their side. So if they weren't going to take accountability, it had to be somebody's fault. So if I was taking acceptance of my portion of the responsibility, they might as well heap the whole thing on me. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a very common scenario, especially with uh, when when you're, well, I mean, different people deal with stress in different ways. And, you know, one of the things that, that we preach a lot is about, again, about ownership, about, you know, even if you felt like you didn't have anything to do with this situation, what was your part in it? What What part of this could you own? And again, people so badly struggle to take on any ownership because it feels easier to just blame someone else. Um, So then you take the brunt of that. And part of my downfall is if I screw up, I'll be the first one to admit that, okay, I screwed up. That was my fault. But now it's been that learning curve of taking control and accepting my responsibility, but not accepting full responsibility for the entire action, just my part. 
Right. Yeah, you're right. Because that then that's the other aspect of it. It's not only that you're willing to own your part, but you're open to taking it when someone is, you know, handing it all to you and saying, hey, this is on you. And I know plenty of plenty of guys, well, plenty of girls, too, that if you accuse them of something, instead of going, I'm sorry, they would be like, and? <laughs> right and and we we tease them right because they've got no shame my dad's like that (laughs) but realistically it's it's like all of these factors kind of combined where you're giving of yourself you're trying to make things work you're hard on yourself you're owning your part but you're also receiving the criticism without the defenses perhaps So you've had to go through quite uh, a lot of self-exploration to to figure this part out? Uh, I figured that if I had actually put myself and applied myself through proper schooling and training, I would easily be on my way to a PhD by this point. <laughs> I don't think there's been wow. a site book I haven't tried to crack and try and understand, or um, I'll read articles like crazy and figure out okay does that apply okay this makes sense or is this kind of under i understand the basics of it don't get me on the science mm-hmm. and the chemicals behind it but the basic theories i can usually process and understand mm-hmm. right and it can also be definitely a, a misunderstanding and even in the scientific community that a lot of this stuff uh, can just be a chemical imbalance i mean that is one mm-hmm. theory some people that are trauma specialists, like uh, even myself, uh, we see trauma everywhere. You know, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So a lot of people will look at um, developments like this and they'll just go, oh, yeah, well, there's some trauma back there. But realistically, if you look at the literature for BPD, that's not always a given. No, for me, I think it's more of a processing how I grew up and um, learned behaviors that wired themselves into my brain so i always say that i'm not working on myself i'm just rewiring my brain right now and sometimes there's some short circuits but it's correcting Mm -hmm. itself yeah yeah exactly well and that's the thing when the way that we have grown up it a hundred percent affects how we affect today these are it's kind of like we are puzzle pieces that we're they we are being shaped and then when we grow up sometimes you know we fit in a different puzzle but Yet, it, you know, the way that we were shaped maybe doesn't fit quite right. So it's so much learning and relearning and being honest with ourselves and and really owning owning how things make us feel and how we think. And that's one of the toughest things is owning it and admitting it again in the public that I'm not 100% perfect. Mm-hmm. And allowing whatever to happen, you know, whatever happens will happen and, and owning it that if people do walk away from you because of it, that you got to you got to live with that. Right. I mean, we do like to say if people are going to walk away from you for being, you know, flawed or imperfect, then maybe they're not so great to have in your life anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's what I when I was looking back at past relationships, um, especially after my last marriage ended, um, because it was, it wasn't, in the beginning, I thought it was me that wasn't enough. 
But then it was, no, my ex-wife, she's on a different path. And she's discovered her path, and that's what she has to do. I have no problem with what she did, how she did it. There's, I got a little bit of beef with that, but what she did, I don't, <laughs> I don't begrudge her. She's happy. So I have no problem with that, and I wish her the best of luck in her new life. Um, but again, how she did it definitely could have been a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's sometimes I suspect the thing that we deny ourselves, you know, when we uh, when we're trying to be open and gracious is the the right to sort of have a judgment. Right. Because then it, a lot of times that comes with guilt, like, oh, you know, it's not fair of me to say this about Okay, Well, you know, sometimes it's a, it's actually helpful to just let yourself be pissed off and it took me a while to get through to my brain that okay i am allowed to be angry i am allowed to be upset and hurt and that everybody's on a different journey but that's why everybody's not the same um and there was a couple books that i read um when i was trying to process what was through my last marriage where I read them and I just completely disagreed because the books were basically on um, ethical non-monogamy and opening up relationships. And when I was reading the books, Mm. they said they were basically saying that you can't control your partner. You can't control their decision and you're wrong if you feel guilty for that. And it's like, I, I understand the concept and I have no problem with stuff like that. But I have a problem when their actions impact me. I'm allowed to feel and I'm allowed to, to react to what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. Could you could you explain that a little bit better? Just that you you can't feel you can't feel guilt. So, um, the book is called Ethical the Ethical Slut, and in the mm-hmm. uh, polyamorous community, it was one of the first books that came out, and basically a lot of people preach it as the holy bible for poly because it starts to explain that everybody is only responsible for their own happiness which i agree with but then later on in the book it starts going into when your partner starts looking for other relationships you should be happy that they are happy and that if you have any other Mm -hmm. feelings other than happiness that's your fault and that you need to work on that. So it takes the mm-hmm. ownership from the other partner and what they're doing and their actions and removes any responsibility and places it all on. In my case, it was all my fault that I was feeling jealous or guilty for what was happening. Not It took all responsibility mm-hmm. away from my partner. Right, right. And I imagine with, when it comes to polyamory, usually there's it, there should be so much about sort of establishing the rules beforehand, so you're both on the same page. And and uh, so I'm I'm curious then, what you know does is it everything goes and you know of course I sorry I'm not I'm not really phrasing this right, but when when we talk about like say in therapy someone comes in and they've got you know, issues with their partner, no matter what kind of relationship they have, what we always go back to is, 
what are your values and your what are what are the mutual agreements in this relationship because if you are getting angry or jealous or upset usually it's because something is really you know disagreeing with your values or some agreement in the relationship has been violated so in the poly that i've been involved with um there mm-hmm. is there's a joke in the poly community that there has to be open communication about everything and it's mm-hmm. part of a joke but it's also very true you have to be open and honest about your feelings and you have to be able to communicate and have no fear about communication with who you're with. Because if there are secrets get blown up horribly when there's more than one person involved. So if you have two people, Mm -hmm. everything just gets amplified and you have to be able to sit and talk things out in an individual dynamic where everybody is free to express their own opinion and not be judged for it and be able to be heard and understood. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I could imagine things getting very challenging if, if you, um, with you know, space, imagine that times two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, so what you're saying is you've got to be in a really, really good place to be able to do this yes. successfully. And it can be done. <laughs> um, and for some reason, I've noticed that in the public community, there is a lot of people that do have uh, the borderline personality traits that may not have been diagnosed, but that they are mm-hmm. definitely out there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the traits of BPD as well is that sexual impulsivity, you know, years and years ago, they used to just say it was promiscuity, right? It would just be (laughs) typically unacceptable kind of sexual behaviors, which, of course, you know, as we've evolved, you know, our society has become much more um, open to, hey, you know, if you're happy, do what makes you happy, as long as you're not hurting anybody. So, you know, it's looked at differently, but the sexual aspect of it is often something that crops up. So I'm curious then again, like what's, what kind of things you, you'd have, you had noticed um, that tipped you off? Um, when I was in my marriage and this is kind of what keyed the going down the borderline path for me was that my wife approached me that there was somebody she had developed feelings for and she wanted to explore those in my brain it was i've got no choice here i have no say because if i say no Mm -hmm. she's gonna go behind my back and do it anyway or if i say yes she's gonna be happy and at least i'm included or at least a part of that happening so that's Mm -hmm. where the borderline personality led me to make bad decisions going down that path not that i regret what happened but i Mm -hmm. should have been a little bit firmer on making sure that everything was level and equal which as it turns out my ex-wife wasn't practicing ethical non-monogamy she was exploring her own sexuality 
with a safety net is the mm-hmm. way I kind of look at it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and then when you were sort of exploring that, that own, your own sense of jealousy, like I could see as you're talking about, you know, the, you've got these values and there's, there's a sense that the values are being violated or that just things are just not right, but you're accepting it because you're afraid that, you know, you're, you're going to lose no matter what. Right. So then, you know, with uh, the, the longer that this went on, um, have you have you been able to come back around and sort of accept that what you were feeling was an accurate reflection that you know you weren't out of it wasn't out of hand for you to feel what you felt looking back i was not crazy um the way i (laughs) reacted may have come across not the best at times like waking up at three Mm -hmm. in the morning um in a yelling screaming match because i was just at that sheer point of panic mode um but yeah, there was there was no communication, or the communication that was happening wasn't true, honest communication. Mm-hmm. And again, those were all the road signs that led me to realize that no, this isn't what I signed on for. This isn't a healthy place to be. I need to get out of there. Mm-hmm. So you know, when we're trying to learn really just how to be ourselves and how to overcome the things that we've been fighting our whole lives. A lot of us will come up with, with mantras or, or advice or even quotes and things like that. Is there anything that you've read that, you know, apart from the, uh, the examples in movies and stuff, but is there anything that you've read that's really stuck with you? That's really helped you to be honest with yourself. Um, It's just being able to take time for yourself and realizing that being alone and having downtime is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Uh, you mm. can still have relationships. You can still have friendships. But you've got to be able to carve time out for yourself and not feel guilty about having that time. So for me, it's playing video games, having music going, um, and just being able to take that time to listen and reflect to myself. Um, and the one song that's always stuck in my head, even since growing up, is... Um, sitting on the dock of the bay by Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter where I am, what mood I'm at. If I just even start humming that song, I'm able to take myself out of the situation for a couple seconds, bring my heart rate down and calm myself down so that I can start processing things logically again. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's wonderful. It's kind of just like a part of, I would imagine, part of your sort of grounding routine. And yeah. the other tip that yeah. I've picked up lately is the, I call it the four square. So I'll picture a square on the wall. I'll go up the square counting to four as I'm breathing in, going across, breathe four seconds, down four seconds, and back across four seconds. Do that a couple times. And usually I find that, okay, that's enough that I can calm down and I'm okay to think now. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a, I love that you mentioned that. It's so incredible <clears throat> what actually happens to us when we take the time to breathe. You know, our nervous system starts to become, you know, less stimulated and we're sending a message to the brain that we're not in danger because our body is reacting as if it's a physical danger. So, you know, what you're doing that is you're taking control, you're, you're bringing the emotional part of yourself down a notch so that you can think more clearly. 
Yeah, that's that's absolutely incredible that you're able to do that and and uh, that you've developed these tools to be able to, again, continue to grow and to learn and to develop. This is just, you know, I wish more people would have the opportunity to do that reflection because so many of us live our lives on hyperdrive and, you know, and we wake up one day and we go, what, what have I done? <laughs> what have I allowed myself to, what kind of life have I allowed myself to live that didn't align with my values? And the, they're all steps along the path. Um, and that's the only thing we can keep doing is we just have to keep traveling down that path. Um, and for me, it was always growing up. I always wondered what, what is history going to think about me in the future? And I kind of had to put that, stop that thought pattern because that was one of my biggest drivers for doing things was it doesn't matter how I'm going to be remembered. If I live a good life, I'll be remembered anyway. So stop trying to live as if you're trying to create history and just create the history. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I, I can't think about myself in that way. That's way too much pressure. <laughs> I mean, just the sort of the striving for greatness, but that, you know, that actually even distracts from your ability to to do as much as you hope yep. that you could do. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it, it's all a learning process. But again, you know, hey, I'm, I'm glad that you're still on this journey, you're on this path, and you're continuing to learn and, and do what's best for you. And, you know, Gord, I really appreciate you sharing about this, especially from your, your perspective is very unique. And you've been through a lot of things that people have, uh, I think people have gone through bits and pieces of what you've gone through, but not enough people speak up yep. about it. And that's, again, yeah. one of the things is there has to be more communication and dialogue. And that's where things like this podcast are great because it gives an avenue for people to be able to understand, okay, I'm not alone. There is somebody that has gone through something similar. It's not going to be exact. My journey is not going to be like anybody else's but enough that we can understand that, hey, I can relate to what he's gone through. Mm -hmm. That there does not need to be this pressure to be perfect. This, there does not need to be this uh, societal expectation of winners versus losers, but, you know, human beings. And that there is a point where we can all win at whatever we're doing. There doesn't have to be a winner or a loser. There's always that middle ground. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, that's the balance, right? That's the balance we all try to strive for, uh, the quality of our lives and uh, the quality of our relationships, trying to find that middle ground. That's wonderful. Thank you so much again for, for sharing with us. And uh, I really do hope that what you've talked about today really helps a lot of people. Um, the more we talk about it, the more normalized it becomes. And, you know, the more likely people are going to reach out and, and share what they're going through and ask for help when they need it. Cause there's nothing wrong with Thanks that. For having me. It, it was fun. <laughs>